Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. Once again, I'm joined by Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire. Welcome. Hello once again. Katie, you're busy getting ready for our live show at Akud next week on November 19th, as well as upcoming publishing adventures in London. So thanks for coming over to record the podcast. Oh, well, it's all those dead ladies on my mind. How could I not? So our other stalwart Dead Lady Show co-founder is going to present today's dead lady. It's the one and only Florian Dowsens. That's right. Florian is a writer, a translator and an educator. And he's going to tell us about an English lady lepidopterist who lived for love called Margaret Fountaine. If you're not familiar with that term, a lepidopterist is a butterfly specialist. And Florian's presentation is full of delightful surprises, actually. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. And by the way, uh, Margaret Fountaine is not to be confused with Margot Fontaine. Oh, no. Yeah, I did that the first time I looked it up. Um, who was an English ballet dancer. Butterflies, not ballet. Another yeah, flight of tricky. fancy. Uh-huh. Um, though I'm sure Dame Margot would be a great subject for our show as well. Oh, yes. Maybe. One day, yeah. So here's Florian from the stage at Berlin's Akkoud. In the spring of 1978, um, I was in utero. And only a few local journalists from Norfolk were present at Norwich's Castle Museum for the opening of a one japanned box, I imagine that's like a black lacquered box, that had been donated with the stipulation that it only be opened in 1978. Margaret Fountaine had also left the museum her collection of 22,000 butterflies, so the curators were expecting the box to hold her entomological manuscripts. But no, the box held 12 identically bound volumes the size of phone books containing diaries Margaret had started aged 15 almost exactly to the day 100 years before, in 1878. Never one to do things by the books, Margaret had originally conceived of the diaries as snapshots of April 15th a day celebrated in her family as, as her day. It wasn't her birthday, but it, was, it wasn't her name day. It was just her special day. After a few years, um, she realized that just writing about one day actually required a lot of backstory to be explained. So she decided to, uh, every year, write up the 12 months prior, pasting in mementos, adding an index of illustrations, and a brisk suggested reading time, <laughs> a la, like medium, that soon ballooned from minutes into hours. In a letter, she also added a caveat to her future readers. I feel it incumbent upon me to offer some sort of apology for much that is recorded herein, especially during the first few years when I naturally passed through a rather profitless and foolish period of life, such as was, and no doubt is still, prevalent among very young girls though perhaps more so then, a hundred years ago, when the education of women was so shamelessly neglected, leaving the uninitiated female to commence life with all the yearnings of nature quite unexplained to her, and the follies and foibles of youth only too ready to enter the hitherto unoccupied and possibly imaginative brain. 
She signed off as follows. To the reader, maybe yet unborn, I leave this record of the wild and fearless life of one who never grew up, enjoyed greatly, and suffered much. Right? That's, that's setting things up. Uh, Margaret was born on the 16th of May, 1862, in the Norfolk countryside. Her father was a reverend who was more interested in hunting and sports than religion. Though his family went back to the 1360s, um, he inherited title nor property. Upon his death, Margaret's mother was left with eight kids and without a home. Margaret's diary starts with her subsequent move to Norwich, a big benefit of moving to the big city meant that she could gawk at men. <laughs> the Fontaine sisters even devised a color-coded card system to mark down who they'd spotted during their shopping trips in town. Whereas her sisters had the hots for curates, uh, Margaret liked musicians, sometimes spending a hundred pages in her diary gushing over men she barely got to talk to ever at all. This is the worst offender um, with a, a very jaunty mustache and, and, and a little bit of a cowlick there. Uh, this is Irish chorister Septimus Hewson, who, of course, is a distant relation to Bono. <laughs> anyway, so she spotted this, uh, this, this choir singer in Norwich Cathedral when she was 21, and for the next seven years, she walked 45 minutes each way into town in order to go quote-unquote sketching in the often freezing cathedral despite not being able to talk to him. As she writes, the dark barrier of rank and position has placed him far, far beneath my reach, and so I may not even go to him even if he calls me. Not that he did, but <laughs> theoretically. Eventually, she dared to send him a letter, likely stunning him with her sudden, passionate declarations, though he was enough of a dick not to reply. <laughs> her crush was doomed, as Septimus was an alcoholic, a skipping town on his debts. Her only comforts in these fraught years were long walks along the coast with her pet goats. Um, <laughs> then, a deus ex machina, a beloved uncle died, leaving a sizable amount to the Fountain sisters, not to the one surviving brother um, who had been hustled to America, likely because he was gay. Now, uh, suddenly sort of independently wealthy, Margaret felt she could totally marry Septimus. <laughs> so she traveled to Limerick, also named Stab City, to find him. He was her first kiss, Margaret was 28. Though he played along with her fantasy of marriage, uh, his uncle stepped in and writing a stern letter to her saying, he is in no way worthy of you and I scarcely think him capable of caring much for anyone but himself. So with this dream shattered, she felt entirely stuck. Spinsterhood seemed like a slow death, but marriage didn't seem much better. To spend a lifetime in one little spot of the great world is to render the mind feeble and contracted, the intellect crippled and deformed, she wrote. Margaret decided she would escape, first to Switzerland, where she rediscovered her childhood game of catching butterflies. I was a born naturalist, she wrote. Though all these years, for want of anything to excite it, it had lain dormant within me. At first, she traveled with a, her sister or a cousin, but soon the rise of the tourism industry 
R.I.P. Thomas Cook, <laughs> made it possible to book trains and hotels from afar. This also had its downsides, as she likened Rome's many tourists to swarms of flies feeding upon the dead carcass of some wild beast. So her passion for lepidoptery provided a perfect excuse to seek out the solitary wilderness, so free to traipse around in practical or like more practical attire. She would still encounter men, though, on these walks, men who wanted to carry her basket, <laughs> men who offered to show her how butterflies mate, <laughs> illustrating what they meant in a manner that was quite unmistakable. She writes, a new epoch was beginning in my life, which I attributed almost entirely to my having discovered a new and very becoming way of doing my hair. <laughs> With her sea of undefined, unuttered desires, as she described it, um, always astir, no surprise, she was almost convinced by one man's plea for free love, sex without marriage. And she wrote, free love, was better than that hallowed by the sanctity of marriage, that those bound in wedlock soon wearied and satiated of one another, and then awoke to find themselves forever bound together, to shiver for a lifetime over the dead embers of an extinct passion, or to break their vows and bring shame and disgrace upon each other and upon their children. She brushed this free love guy off. She said, you see that red light so far away? Imagine that little light 10,000 times farther off than we see it now, and that is not so far as is the possibility of my allowing you to come and see me in my room tonight. <laughs> so she'd meet all kinds of people on her travel. She'd meet Corsican bandits, Italian barons, and though she remained very aware of the class differences between her and these people, uh, she would always name her assistants in her articles, unlike many of her male colleagues. She published her first of these articles in 1897, also the year London's Natural History Museum took the first uh, 44 butterfly specimens from her, starting a fruitful relationship that would last more than 40 years. On her returns from these trips to the UK to Bath, where her mom was living at the time, she felt like an alien. So on she traveled to Holland, which she hated, Germany, not much better, loved Vienna, she caught some of the last purple emperors there, which are butterflies. So she was rapturous about Hungary, Romania. She even convinced her sister to go on a very epic bike ride from Cannes to Venice, um, over 600 kilometers, often riding 80 kilometers a day on a bike with no gears, right? In 1898. Uh, she became a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society, and she felt great, writing, the life of a spinster, odious as some may figure it in ideal, is as far as my experience of it has gone at present, very delightful, and infinitely preferable to any other. Besides, she also felt fated to be unlucky in love. She wrote, the love of a true good man is forever denied to me. It's no use for me to try and imagine anything else. Therefore, I will just get all the pleasure in life from intercourse with the bad men that I meet. By intercourse, <laughs> she does not mean that. <laughs> that is to say, going to the very edge of the precipice, but without falling over it. She was 33. 
Margaret got into breeding butterflies from eggs and caterpillars, both to get sort of perfect specimens, right? Because they'd be, be unhar- she would kill them, right? <laughs> Just like snap their little thoraxes between her fingers. She didn't like that part, but that's how she'd do it. So she would get perfect specimens, but also to learn more about their feeding plants and their, their larval and pupil stages. In Greece, uh, on one of these trips, she wrote, I went back to Athens for two nights, but longed to be back in the wild, free to lead my own unsophisticated life, away from the conventionalities of civilization. Freedom is the crowning joy of life. After her favorite sister died, um, Margaret had no one she loved left in England. So she booked passage to Beirut. Uh, Here's where she met the guide and interpreter who would become her partner in life and lepidoptery. At first, she thought very little of him, noting his crushed, almost cowed look. Khalil Naimi, for that was his name, was from the Christian part of Damascus in Syria. Having learned English from American missionaries, even spending four years in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. (laughs) This presentation will take you all over the world, ladies and gentlemen. He brought her fresh flowers every day, but his obsequiousness um, brought out the worst in her. Still, he persisted, you know, kissing her hand and complimenting her legs, and she'd be like, no. (laughs) But after a while, she softened. Never had I seen any human face with a look more intensely of joy and gladness depicted upon it. His cheeks were glowing, and his eyes were bright with happiness and excitement, and it was little more than the face of a boy. I mean, he was 24, Um, she was 39. (laughs) Though the very idea of sex um, disgusted her, or at least the way men had pitched it to her so far, (laughs) Khalil seemed content to kiss her, hold her, and Margaret was swooning. And then, out there beneath the shadows of those great rocks near Baalbek, on that glorious summer morning, (laughs) I solemnly vowed to him that I would be his wife. And then I said, I have never kissed you once, but now I will give you one kiss for the first time. And I kissed him on the cheek, which was smooth and pink, and then we held each other's hands and swore to be true. And all the time, the big brown butterflies flitted unmolested to and fro among the rock. (laughs) Getting married, however, seemed impossible, since she didn't want to conform to his rather traditional ideas of how a wife should behave, nor did she like how marrying him would automatically make her an Ottoman subject, losing her rights as a British citizen. She wrote, I will come under no laws but the laws of my own country, and goodness knows they are bad enough on women, especially married ones. Yet more than laws and borders would stand in their way as Margaret received a letter from Khalil's wife. So this begins a whole thing. (laughs) Traveling back and forth to Syria to get to the bottom of this, she learned that he even had two children. Khalil, he explained, he said their marriage had been arranged. His wife was a sex worker, is the correct word now. He said he would try to get a divorce. While this all sounds soup sketch um, to us, (laughs) it was enough for her. Um, He, and I, From reading her diary, he certainly treated her with love, care, and respect, becoming a true partner in her work, not to mention always, always, always doing her dishes. 
She wrote, we worked very hard and we were always underfed, but the days were not long enough to contain all the happiness which was ours in this wonderland in which we found ourselves. Um, so while they had sex, I am sorry to report Margaret was profoundly disappointed. <laughs> all the pleasures for the man, for the woman remains only a heritage of pain. Khalil agreed, they needn't try again. He would sleep on the couch, on the floor, thereafter. She wrote, we were both satisfied as it was, and after all, we escaped the cares and worries of matrimony, and maybe that satiety, which is so often the unwelcome guest to the soft, downy pillow of the marriage bed. Ours was a flinty couch, maybe a cavern among the rocks, or some tangled thicket. Her mother had died when she returned to the UK next, so she got an apartment. And uh, while she was in the UK in 1907, she found herself horrified at the violence the suffragettes faced at the time. It is curious how all over the world the strong feeling there is in men to trample down and crush the weaker sex, not only in the East, but in Europe too, and now in England. So off she went to Yugoslavia, then Tanzania, Zanzibar, South Africa. Uh, they went to South Africa for Khalil's health. He had some kind of very embarrassing ailment that is not described in the diary. She absolutely loved Durban, South Africa. Finally, she had the time and the climate to not just breed butterflies. Just to give you an idea, for breeding butterflies, we have this cage and you have to move the caterpillars to fresh leaves, and you have to clean out the droppings, and there would be a hundred <laughs> caterpillars in each cage. It's a lot of work. And so she bred these butterflies to study and to sketch them. She was a very good watercolor artist, and she would sketch their life cycles. This uh, meant months scouring the undergrowth for specific kinds of tiny eggs. I'll show you a picture of how tiny. And so some of the butterflies drop these eggs mid-flight. So, good luck finding those. <laughs> she did her most important entomological work there, identifying the food plants and life cycles of eight different butterflies. To contextualize this, scientists have not yet been able to determine the food plants of at least 200 butterflies that are common in Europe and North America, not to mention the ones on the other continents. So entire species are going extinct before we even know which plants could actually save them. She also discovered that some caterpillars are smart enough to, once they've eaten off all the leaves, they actually chew off the branch so that they know not to come back to it. Um, or that before pupation, some caterpillars actually fortify the leaf stalk with silk thread so that it's less likely to break from the weight of the chrysalis as it sort of hangs from the leaf. Smart. The sagacity of caterpillars was her talk that she gave about this. <laughs> Very cool. So with this professional confidence also came a personal confidence. And finally, she was brave enough to bring Khalil over to England. He would stay in a bedroom off her studio, not, not in her actual apartment. Um, and then even visit her exiled brother in Virginia. Though he proved an alcoholic when she finally met him, Margaret worked hard to interest a local girl in marrying him. The girl, and possibly also Margaret's brother, were much more interested in Khalil, but he sternly redirected <laughs> their intentions. Off the two went to Florida, to Havana, before heading to Jamaica, at which point I have to tell you she was a very typical Victorian in at least one horrible racist respect, writing about how shocked she was at the amount of miscegenation. 
blaming the English for importing slaves in the first place and then fathering children with them. That was hard to read. She does get better when she ages in terms of her racism. She's less racist, but I figured I should at least tell you this so that we're not exclusively fangirling. Um, Though Margaret and Khalil, you know, her interracial partner, whatever. It's complicated. Uh, So though Margaret and Khalil were warmly welcomed at the Congress of Entomology in Paris, his naturalization, so the process of him turning into a Brit so they could marry without her becoming an Ottoman, not the seat, but a subject, (laughs) um, was very tricky. His divorce was not coming through. It was also because there were the Balkan Wars were happening, which were called the Balkan Wars, but they were not in the Balkan, they were in the Middle East. And so all the priests that could confirm the divorce had like fled. It was, yeah, again, complicated. So time for a new plan. Um, As a girl, Margaret had always wanted to become a quote unquote loose adventurer (laughs) who broke in wild horses in Australia. So they decided to move to Queensland to become ranchers. They'd be able to live together. Khalil would become Charles, plus there'll be butterflies aplenty. They found a gorgeous piece of wilderness outside of Kuranda. There was cockatoos all around. Um, She splurged on some land and commissioned a house built on stilts so snakes would be less likely to come in and she could have a shady workshop underneath. But as it turns out, and people told them they didn't listen, the jungle was not a good place to breed horses. Um, World War I broke out. This also meant that her money dried up. Khalil started to drink, and Margaret uh, started to become convinced that her new house was haunted. Worse, someone in town was spreading vicious rumors about her cheating on Khalil, which she would never, um, and he believed them. So the three years they spent in Australia, the longest she would spend anywhere in her adult life, were to be the low point of their life together. She had to put the ranch up for rent. No one would buy it. Margaret found Khalil a job in Sydney because he had to stay within the Commonwealth in order to get his passport. He still had a year to go. Uh, While she headed to America because Europe was, of course, still in the throes of World War I. Arriving in sunny California, and the butterfly-rich canyons around Los Angeles and Hollywood, Margaret slowly came back to life. Though she always supplemented her trust income with butterfly work, for the first time in her life now, at age 56, she needed to make money. And she became a professional collector for various American institutions and collectors, catching, breeding, stuffing, and mounting not just thousands of butterflies. Um, A collector paid her a lot of money to catch 5,000 of these tiny butterflies that are just half the side of a fingernail. Then when she, when she caught them, she was like, here they are. He, he was like, can you get me 5,000 more? She was like, no. <laughs> that was a mistake. Um, uh, but she also started to catch scorpions and spiders. By the time the war and subsequent influenza epidemic were over, Margaret could sail back to the UK, where she was horrified at the way veterans were being traded, writing... What would the men say if it were possible for a lot of old women to bring about conditions which would mean the wholesale slaughter and mutilation of all the youngest and most perfect of girls and women? Her faith in the empire sort of began to waver at this point. In 1923, Margaret convinced Khalil, who was caring for his sort of endlessly ailing mother in Syria, 
to travel to Asia, where they explored what's now Myanmar, Thailand, and the butterfly mecca of the Philippines. They collected 114 different species, becoming the first to breed this very rare and gorgeous black and red butterfly. But no one could replicate their work today, as Palilo Island, where they did most of their work, has lost the most part of its forest, and 71% of butterflies in the Philippines no longer have a stable habitat. Conservationists today use Margaret's work to protect remaining habitats and grow the right plants, naming this stunning midnight-colored species for her in tribute, the Euploa finerita margarita. A lifelong smoker, Margaret was proud to smuggle 60 cigars from Manila back to the UK. She secured, a, she was like, here are these boxes of butterflies. Would you like to look at them, customs officers? And she'd hid, no, anyway. She felt very cool. She was 60, you know. She secured a large studio in Hampstead to set the butterflies she sold to museums and collectors, some of whom would pay up to seven pounds at the time, which was a lot of money, uh, for a single prize specimen. While Khalil was still stuck in uh, Syria, Margaret explored Nigeria, Cameroon, Sierra Leone, she really went everywhere, um, returning sick with malaria and dysentery and having lost all her teeth. Age 65. Finally, however, Khalil had gotten his divorce. And he was waiting for her. He was waiting for her uh, with like a really big smile because he'd gotten all gall teeth. In this picture behind me, you see him smiling very brightly and she just like opening her box of butterflies to sort of distract from the fact that she has no teeth, I guess. Soon, Margaret had to be off to the West Indies. She had to make money. She had to catch butterflies for a collector, but he had to still, still, still stay in, in Britain to get his passport finally. He was not prepared for the winter, the terrible, terrible winter of 1927. So he accepted a job as a guide in Egypt, thereby forfeiting again, which he'd done several times before, forfeiting his years um, for his citizenship requirement. Margaret would never see him again. He died of malaria in Damascus. Afterwards, Margaret got letters from people claiming to be his wife or relations, saying he'd left behind five children. Some were like toddlers, which made not a lot of sense, but maybe. Um, she didn't believe them, though. Even to her biographers, Khalil would remain a mystery, as it's unknown how many children he had in the first place, why he struggled to get naturalization, because he had American citizenship all this time. <laughs> anyway, maybe he forgot. <laughs> maybe he was a really big liar. Uh, he does not seem to have stolen her money, abused his position in any other way, so we don't know. Margaret fled her grief for South America. It was hard for her not to have anyone to help her out, harder yet to pass the evenings alone, she found. But Brazil being Brazil, she soon was enraptured. She discovered several new butterflies, naming two after Khalil, the Caratinia ninonia nemi and the Kiomara Khalili. The next year, she traveled to Guyana, Venezuela, uh, she would find the Orinoco rainforest already then under threat of destruction along with its butterflies. At age 70, off she went to Madagascar, where she admitted to herself that the locals were not just wonderfully polite, but maybe also smart. 
to the equator in Kenya, where she drank one half of her sherry in the northern hemisphere and the other half in the southern, <laughs> to Uganda, Vietnam, Cambodia. The 1930s were to be her most productive period, breeding butterflies that had never been studied or documented before, and this in her 70s. She wrote, sometimes I dream that I'm young again, but I never feel any regret when waking comes and I know I'm an old woman. Margaret died in her element, hunting butterflies in a Trinidad rainforest, collapsing of a stroke or a heart attack while wearing a men's shirt with big pockets sewn all over, filled with jars and little boxes for her specimens. She was found by a monk from the aptly named Our Lady of Exile and buried the next day in an unmarked grave outside Port of Spain. Later, a plaque was added outside the abbey. Uh, sadly, her scientific journals are all lost, and her butterfly collections, which she named for both uh, herself and Khalil, which is very sweet, and her beautiful watercolor artwork are only viewable on request in the museums in, in London and in Norwich. But if you want to know more about Margaret's life, you can snap up her diaries, which I have right here. They were edited by W.F. Cater, published in two short volumes, uh, one called Love Among the Butterflies, the other is called Butterflies and Late Loves. Uh, they're, they're fairly skinny, but they were distilled from 3,203 pages. You can also pick up the more recent excellent biography by Natasha Scott Stokes, which is called Wild and Fearless, The Life of Margaret Fountaine. That picture behind me and the badge on my shirt uh, is of Margaret's unofficial blue plaque which was created by theater troupe The Common Lot earlier this year when they learned that of the 300 plaques in Norfolk, only 25 were dedicated to women. The plaque says, Margaret Fountaine, 1862 to 1940, I'm a bloody lepidopterist and I loved love. <laughs> Aww. So I'll close with a quote from her 1897 diary entry. I suppose someday I may be rather a distinguished person in the entomological world. And though perhaps the distinction might not be the greatest I could have aspired to, every rung of the ladder of fame will have been pleasant, without one arduous or difficult step. For the way will have led me through flower-strewn meadows, over glorious mountains and sunny hillsides, through the heart of dense forests, by the side of mountain streams, and on the shores of sunlit lakes. Does life present such varied sense to everybody? I think not. Thank you. Lauren Dowson's on Margaret Fontaine, recorded live with help from Huey Inez Remy. We'll have some photos of Margaret and also Khalil and some stunning butterflies on Instagram at Dead Lady Show and at our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast. Margaret's diaries, you know, they were giving me a little bit of deja vu. Um, they are kind of secret, but they're not coded like those of a certain Ann Lister, uh, who we covered in our first season, who is now all the rage, of course, uh, via Gentleman Jack. How important do you think diaries or other private writings are in terms of learning about the lives of women from the past? You know, I've just been thinking about that because the woman who I'm going to talk about next week um the chevalier de Jong also wrote a lot about her life and used her private writing to kind of work out her ideas about being a woman and about virtue and philosophy this is in the uh, 1790s um <laughs> and i think writing 
is a way that women can contemplate their lives. Of course, we don't know how truthful they are on the page. You know, They're, this particular one was an extremely unreliable narrator. And, and Lister as well kind of wrote down her ideal self in her diaries. So we get a unique insight, I suppose, into how they want us to think they were, which is also interesting. It is, and I like the idea of the unreliable narrator in a way, even though it makes things tough for historians. Yeah. Um, also, there's the fact that these were meant to be private, at least we think they were in most cases. Are we infringing on their memories or their their privacy by reading them? That may even be a religious question. I am an atheist. I don't think we are. I think they're dead, and we can learn so much from them. Uh, that we're not we're not really crossing any boundaries in my worldview. Maybe other people would see that differently as an interesting thought, yeah. I mean, that certainly was the case with the family of Anne Lister, not that they had the right idea about it, but there was some sense of, oh dear, let's not have this get out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then why do they have more right to keep her writing a secret than we have to read it? I, that's not quite clear to me anyway. We did, we do have access to a lot of Anne Lister's writings. A lot of her diaries are still haven't been decoded. So we have very little idea about what she did in the sort of second half of her life. But uh, they're plodding away. <laughs> One day we may know more. Yeah, so keep writing those diaries, listeners. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a really important way to learn about women's lives and that's what we do on the dead ladies show and we're going to be doing that uh, as katie mentioned um, in her talk and other talks on uh, next tuesday on the 19th of november and there's more on tap for dead lady lovers right katie <laughs> there is so the next show from our friends at the new york dead lady show will be at the kgb bars red room on december the 10th and a few days before that on december the 5th we, you and I and Florian are hitting the road and heading to Münster. Yay. Yes. <laughs> no, it's very excited to be invited. And um, there's going to be a dead lady translator theme show at the Burghushof. Is that how you say it? I would say Burghushof. Burghushof. Yes. It's very difficult to say. <laughs> it is very <laughs> At the Burghushof Center for Literature, which is actually named for a dead lady. And we'll be bringing you some talks from that event later in this season of the podcast. Yes, so if you're in Berlin or Münster indeed, or anywhere near those two places, do come and see us. You can also support us if you like. Uh, we have a Patreon that's allowing us to transcribe the show, which brings it to more people. And we'd like to say thank you to our Patreon supporters out there, including the fabulous Kate Juanu. Yay! Yay. Um, for a one-time donation, if that's what you like to do, uh, head over to paypal.me slash dlspodcast. If you are short on cash but long on love, mm. you know, we always appreciate it when you share our show with friends or even enemies. And <laughs> <laughs> why not? And uh, rate, review, and subscribe. So that really helps us. And all it costs is your time and love, which we love. Yes. And you can do it in any language you like. Ooh. You can do it on any platform that accepts reviews. And we'll just be so happy. Yeah. We'll have to automatically translate it if you write it in Serbo Croat. But hey, we you're, don't you're a translator. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do all the languages. Someday, someday. Yeah, well, once I have a computer implanted in my brain, yeah, that day. 
Well, that we don't have, but we do have a jaunty theme song, <laughs> and <do>. it's, <laughs> it's Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Support for this episode of The Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.